Many years ago, when Peter and I were first married, we lived in Toronto. We, we moved there. He had lived in Toronto before we met at Bible College in Winnipeg. And when we were getting married, we settled back in Toronto. And I went to work at an office building downtown. And for, I had never lived in Toronto in my life. And that was a whole new experience in and of itself. I definitely felt like a small town girl who had moved to the city. But it was an adventure, really. You got on the TTC every day and the subway and you went down, you came up out of tunnels into what looked like a completely different world than anything I had ever experienced before. And while I was working there, I met uh, in this office building, I met a woman named Violet Nagalingham. Now you might assume just by the sound of her name that she also had a very different experience and background than I did, and that is very true. Violet. Uh, was a landed immigrant to Canada. She'd actually come on a refugee status and then got her landed immigrant papers. And she was from Sri Lanka. And she worked in the mail room of the office building that I, uh, that I worked in. She was, culturally, she was Singalese. And her husband was a Tamil. Now, unless you are well-versed in political issues in that part of the world, that might not mean a lot to you. It didn't mean anything to me when I first met her and got to know her. But as she explained to me, uh, it, met, it was a big deal in her life and in the life of her family. Um, because their, their different cultures meant a lot of things. It meant lack of acceptance from their families, a lot of religious differences, social misunderstandings, and in fact, a lot of persecution for them. Those two cultural and racial groups had been at war with each other in Sri Lanka for many years. And because Violet and her husband had mixed uh, when they married, neither group accepted them. They were shunned and outcast from both of those cultural groups. And they received persecution at the hands of both sides. Violet, uh, it, the situation had become so bad in the mid to late 80s that she really needed to flee um, Sri Lanka. And she did as a refugee, as I said, and her and her two children came to Canada in 1987. Her children, her son was uh, in his teenage years, um, and her daughter at the time was ready to go to college, so she was maybe 19 or so as well. But they fled and came to Canada and had to leave everything behind. And even her husband stayed behind, because at the time, only she and the two children could get um, permission to come to Canada. Violet loved living in Canada. She loved the opportunities it afforded her and her children. She, as I said, could go to work. She worked in the office building that I worked at. She supported herself and her children. And they no longer lived in fear for their lives and experienced the persecution that they had experienced on a daily basis at home. She'd found a circle of friends here that filled in as a substitute family for those that she had left behind. But in many ways, as much as she loved living here and the opportunities it gave her, she was Sri Lankan. Her values and customs, the things she was familiar with, were Sri Lankan. And there were many things about our customs that she didn't understand. And we had a lot of conversations about those kinds of things. Violet was a citizen of Sri Lanka, and she likely always would be. Her husband was still there, and I'm sure in many ways she longed to be there. But she knew that Canada was the place that was best for her at the time. And she knew she would likely live out the rest of her life in Canada. I tell that story because my friendship with Violet comes to mind when I read this passage. 
where Paul is dealing with some difficult issues in the town of Philippi, which was a town that Paul had been to and ministered to and started a church some, year before, some years before, and he wrote them a letter, a letter that many of you are quite familiar with, I'm sure. You've read yourself, you've heard preached on many times. But it's very clear that there were some believers in the town of Philippi that had become confused about the gospel message since Paul had left. So he has to write and he has to clarify some things that he thinks are important for them to know um, so that they can get back on the right track. And Paul is hard pressed to tell them that in a spiritual sense, in a spiritual sense, there's no such thing as dual citizenship. Is anyone here a dual citizen? If you don't mind my putting you on the spot. My son-in-law just became a dual citizenship. And we've had a lot of interesting conversations um, with him about what does it mean to become Canadian and, and what different, he's American. We might think oh, that's not that big a difference, but he sees a lot of big differences. And so this idea of having citizenship in two places is possible in a worldly sense. But Paul is challenging the Philippians and us, I think, to recognize that there isn't really a way to have a truly balanced dual citizenship citizenship in the spiritual sense um, this morning. There is our earthly citizenship and there is a heavenly citizenship and one must be the priority. We, we live in both places as believers. We live here in the world and we experience the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But Paul is saying that one of these citizenships must be our priority. And we're going to look at what he means by that as we dig in a little bit this morning. In this passage that I just read in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to open your scriptures, Paul deals with some issues. Now, a lot of Paul's letters in the New Testament were written to correct a really big theological misunderstanding in the church. Some really clear false teaching that had been going on since he had planted the church and, and then went on his, the rest of his journeys. And, and in a lot of those other letters, you can really clearly see what it is, a theological, a doctrinal issue, a behavioral issue that he has to write and address. In some of those, he calls people out by name and, and, or situations out by name. And some of those letters, particularly in the Corinthian letters, you can sense that there's been a little bit of back and forth. You know, he's written the church, the church has written back to him. Well, what about this? He writes back to them again, this is what you should do. They write back to him. Philippians is a little bit of a standalone letter and unique in Paul's writings in a lot of ways in the sense that it doesn't have a real big issue in the church that he has to deal with to correct them on. Um, there's a few little things that he wants to make sure they're on track about, but the purpose of the letter is much more, it's, it's, a, it's a thank you letter, really. They had sent him a very generous gift. He's in prison at the time he's writing this letter. They had sent him some sort of very generous gift, um, probably some financial means and some practical means to look after himself, delivered by someone who likely stayed uh, in the city. He was imprisoned and helped him and ministered to him. Um, and so it would have been a big sacrifice what they provided. So he's writing them to thank them for that. And throughout the book of Philippians, you can sense the love he has for this, this group of Christians um, and the way he thanks them and over and over again and, call, and uses terms of great affection for them. And you can see that in the book of Philippians. It's an, a warm letter to friends, 
perhaps like some of you. Some of you, I know, still write letters and cards, um, and, and, but we all know what it's like to receive a, a nice card from somebody, a, a thank you letter, a greeting, a word of encouragement. And that's what this letter is like from Paul to his friends. He instructs them as their friend and as their pastor regarding certain situations amongst them as he writes this thank you letter. And this passage is one of those uh, times in the book of Philippians where he takes a little aside from his thank you to say, listen, be careful about this. And that's what we're looking at. It would seem that the Philippians had amongst them in their church some who were confusing them. They were new believers. They didn't have a heritage of faith to pass down from one generation to another. This was new stuff at the time. And so as they had sat under Paul's ministry and learned from him um, the gospel and the, the good news about Jesus and the things that were true and right and just to live by, after Paul had moved on, there were some people amongst them that were confusing their faith a little bit, and Paul needed to write them. And so his first instruction um, in, in verse 17 of this section can sometimes sound a little bit arrogant and maybe not something that we would write if we were writing to a friend that we thought was a little bit confused. But Paul says to them, follow my example. Follow my example. And those who I've told you are also following my example, you can follow their example as well. So Paul, sometimes, if we, if we misunderstand this, we might think it sounds a little bit like an extreme ego. But really, we see in the preceding verses, which I challenge you to read a little later, Paul in the earlier verses of chapter 3, Paul uh, outlines all that he's gone through on his journey of faith. The struggles he's had, the persecution he's experienced, his heritage of faith as an Israelite and the ways in which he was grounded in that and that Jesus had made himself known and all that he had done and experienced and learned about Jesus. He's just outlined all that for them. So when he says to them in verse 17, follow my example, he's already told them uh, given them good reasons why he is a good example to follow. It's not an extreme ego. It's not that he's arrived so much that he even has nothing left to learn. But these people are very dear to him. He calls them his joy and his crown. He really has a strong affection for them. And so he's very concerned that they're being led astray. So when he says, you know that I came and taught things to you, and now there's other people teaching things to you. Rely on what I taught you. Because he knows that if they do that, at least, they're, they're on the right path. He instructs them to imitate him, as well as those others who he knew understood his teaching, and apply those things to their lives. It isn't ego, it's his really strong pastoral concern for them, to be sure that they're on the right path. And Paul realizes he has a very good reason to be concerned. This is apparently not the first time he's had to address this issue, but he says, I tell you again here, emphatically, so emphatically he says he's in tears about this issue. You can sense his real heart that they are on the right path, on the right track to following Jesus appropriately with their lives. We could discuss what these, these tears mean, but what we know for sure is that they are proof that Paul is very personally involved in this discussion. He's really got a stake in it here. It's of utmost importance to him. And so we wonder, what is this issue that Paul has? What's the concern with the Philippian people? What is the big threat to their ability to follow Jesus well? 
It's so concerning to the Apostle Paul that he's in tears about it. He's writing a letter to dear friends, and he is so upset that he needs to remind them not to follow anybody else's example, but to follow his, and he becomes so emotional about it. Well, Paul doesn't hold back any punches as he describes what this problem is. He, he lays it all out there. He describes the people who have been causing some problems in the Philippian church, and he calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. There's no soft selling here. He's saying it as it is. You follow my example or the example of those that are following my teaching, teaching or you follow these other people, and they are enemies of the cross of Christ. That's strong language. We wonder, what does it mean to be an enemy of the cross of Christ? What kind of behavior does that, require, does that label require? What have these people been doing that would make Paul refer to them in such a way? Well, here's his description of them. After he labels them as enemies of the cross of Christ, he says, this is what they do. So this is how you know that they're enemies. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Oh, well, that makes it all very clear, doesn't it? Don't you know exactly what that means? I don't know what that means. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, you're like, come on, Paul, tell us, tell us what's going on here. If we have to be so careful to make sure that we're not going down this wrong path, we're not following the enemies of the cross of Christ, what, what's their, how do we know that? And this is the description he labels for them. And we wonder what could Paul possibly be referring to here. Well, we can deduce this a number of ways. Bible scholars tell us in some of other of Paul's writings in this area of the world, we know that there were some common problems in other churches. Remember I said Paul had written some of his other letters to churches really tackling some of these issues head on. And so we can assume that some of that was also making its way into the Philippian church. Um, and scholars will tell us about two groups of people who were present in a lot of the early churches that were going a little askew of this true path of following Jesus. And one were a group of people known as Judaizers. And they were believers in Jesus with a strong Jewish background. And in their mind, faith alone was not enough. Faith in Jesus and his work on the cross wasn't enough. You, you also had to keep upholding the laws of the Jewish faith. So even if you weren't Jewish culturally, but you were coming to faith in Jesus, well, then you should also pick up the, 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 the Jewish attributes of, of that faith as well, they thought. And that um, the ways they thought that was most... Uh, visibly shown was to follow the food rights of the Jewish faith, the things you could eat and you couldn't eat, and for males, the act of circumcision. And they added these requirements. So their influence in the, in, the, in the church community in Philippi was to say, listen, it's great that all of you Philippians who aren't Jewish are coming to faith in Jesus, who was Jewish, but you should also now also follow the law that we as Jews follow by only eating certain foods and by becoming circumcised as a sign that you are a member of this faith community. Another group of people were not of Jewish background. They were a very strong Greek background and a word for them in general at the time was Gnostics. And Gnostics was a way of thinking about the world that said that nothing physical really mattered. Everything was important sort of mentally. 
and if it, it, there, was a, there was secret knowledge that you had to attain with your life, and your physical body was going to pass away anyway, so it didn't matter. And when that worked its way, that was sort of a philosophical idea in the Greek world at the time. And when that idea worked its way into the church, there were Christian believers who sort of came from that mindset in their history and culture as a people. And they, they, when they became Christians, that didn't just all fall away, that understanding they had of the world. And so they became known as the Christian, in the Christian community as libertines. And how that came into the Christian faith was to say, well, what matters is your understanding of Jesus and that you have sort of mentally figured out the secret of the gospel. And what you did with your physical life didn't really matter. And so, in fact, these people, because your physical life didn't really matter, the Gnostics thought you should engage in all sorts of physical pleasures. Because what happened in the physical world didn't matter. It was only your thought life. And so when that made its way into Christian community, the Libertines detracted also from faith in Jesus by saying, it's all just kind of a mental exercise. It doesn't really matter if you, how you live your life. And so this idea of libertines, this liberty they had in Christ or freedom in Christ, they turned that basically into freedom to, to sin, as long as you sort of understood it all. So there's, these, there's lots of evidence in the New Testament that these two groups, the Judaizers who said, you also had to follow the Jewish faith when you came to faith in Jesus, and the libertines who had, were so sort of soaked in the Gnostic ideas of the Greek world brought that into the faith as well. And so when these people all gathered together in Christian community, like we do today with our different stories and our different backgrounds, some of them brought a little bit of these errant ideas, attached them onto the gospel, and that was starting to get people confused from this message that Paul had preached. So that's what Paul is referring to when he's talking about, that, that's, an, that's not what I want you to follow, I want you to follow my example. And they would have thought back and thought, yeah, I never heard Paul say we, we couldn't eat pork. Paul didn't teach that. Or they might say, yeah, Paul never said as long as you sort of believed it in your, head, in your mind, you could do whatever you wanted and it didn't matter. That wasn't something Paul taught us. So that's why he's saying, follow my example, follow my example. And so this statement of their God is in their stomach and their glory is in their shame, we, these can be, can be applied to both people. The references to food, got, food rights, what, what you, if you glory in that, you know, or your glory and your shame, this idea that it doesn't really matter what you do. You do whatever you want. Have as much fun as you want in life. Get as much physical pleasure as you want. It doesn't really matter what you're doing with your body and how you live your life. It's all a mental exercise. These statements can definitely apply to these two groups. And a lot of scholars think that's what Paul is referring to here. They had a feel-good do-it or follow-these-rules-to-the-letter-of-the-law attitude. And Paul says that both of these groups, both of these ideas can be seen as standing against what the cross of Jesus stood for. Paul says that their mind is on earthly things, but their citizenship is really in heaven. And that is where believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, need to differ from these enemies of the cross. 
is to understand where's, where's your true citizenship? Where is the true set of ideas and values that mold who you are? Where are they coming from? Worldly influences or something else? Well, what does that mean for us? I don't know that anyone here at WWCC is being taught here at the church that you need to only eat certain foods or partake in certain kind of rituals in order to follow Jesus well. And I'm quite certain no one here is trying to teach you to live blatantly immoral lives in the name of freedom in Christ. So then how can we apply this to our lives today, 2,000 years later, in yet another totally different cultural landscape? Well, Paul says that the believer's citizenship is a heavenly citizenship, a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Paul is referring here much more to more than a passport or a birth certificate. You see, it's interesting that Paul uses this language in the letter to the Philippians because of all of the churches that Paul wrote, the Philippians had a very um, a strong sense of pride in the fact that they were a Roman colony. Not all of the churches that Paul wrote were Roman colonies. This status meant a lot to them. This understanding that they had privileges as being a part of a, someone who would have been seen as a Roman citizenship. And so Paul is appealing to their sense of um, pride in belonging to that group in, when he uses this language. He's talking about where their true place of belonging is. Where do they find their true sense of identity? And he told them that that is supposed to come from the, the knowledge that they are citizens in the kingdom of heaven. But then what are citizens of heaven? And we see that in verse 20, when he says this, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Now, Paul very much here is talking about language of heaven, a time and a place. He says Jesus is going to come back from there. And he can do his work and, and he'll transform our bodies to be different bodies in heaven. But just because Paul is using this language about a future heaven and Jesus coming back from there, something that's going to happen in another time, in another place or space. Don't mistake Paul's teachings here to think that his teaching is really just, all that really matters is where you go when you die. That's not what citizenship in heaven means. Because if you're a citizen... If we're going to use Paul's language here, which he knew that Philippians could really identify with, they were a Roman citizen wherever they went. And people who were not Roman citizens would have understood it. And those of you who've traveled internationally know how important it is to hold on to your passport. If you're ever asked to prove who you are and where you're from and what rights and privileges you might have to come and go from certain places. I was reading a blog this week of, of two friends of ours who have served with Mercy Ships International. I'm not sure if you're aware of those. It's a Christian organization that um, has boats that sail around the coast of Africa and give, they're, med they're floating hospitals, really. They're, they're quite magnificent. Um, and, and he was writing a blog as he's ready to come back talking about the value of his Canadian passport because as their boat sailed to different countries while well, they served with them for four months, every country they, they, they uh, went to port in Mark and Tammy, our friends, could get off and go 
because of their passport. He said that wasn't true for all the people volunteering. Some people from different African countries that were volunteering on the ship couldn't get off in a nearby African country because of the political strife between those two and they wouldn't let them come off the boat. He said he'd never, and he's traveled a lot in his life, he'd never really seen so clearly the difference it made that he had a Canadian passport that he could come and go from. And he, he felt very Canadian all the time. And I think that's what Paul is appealing to here, to these Roman citizens who felt very Roman all the time wherever they went in their world, is to say, yes, you have Roman status and that's great. That, that's, that puts you in good stead. And I think he would say to you this morning, if you're a Canadian citizen or whatever citizen you're from, yes, you have that citizenship. Great. That might afford you a lot of privileges in this world. But in the same way that you might go around and say, well, I'm Canadian, how often does it cross your mind to say, I'm a citizen of heaven? And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a dual citizenship. You have the citizenship of whatever country on earth here you're a citizen in. But you're also a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, which is a place that has different values. It's a place where your glory can't be in your stomach, whatever that means. <laughs> but it means something. It can't be in the rules you keep. And, and, and your, your dogmatic way of, of staying to this set of guidelines. And, and it, can't be in, it can't be in the things that you think, the, the mindset that you pick up from the world around you, even from your citizenship around you. Being a citizen of heaven is a totally different thing. And again, it's not just about where you go when, when, when you die. It's about the fact that you live with the awareness now that you are living in another kingdom that exists now, not just in the later. It exists now and you're a part of it as a believer in Jesus. And it goes with you wherever you go. It truly is dual. You know, for other dual, my son-in-law, who I mentioned as a dual citizen, he can't be in Canada and the United States at the same time. Well, I guess technically the, there are places where you could have one foot uh, across the border. But he, you can't be in both places at one time. But as a citizen of heaven, you are. You are here, going about your daily lives, your work, your family, your relationships, the decisions that you make. As a citizen of heaven that lives in Canada. Or, is it more that you're a citizen of Canada who's hoping to go to heaven someday? Those are different statements. And I think Paul's challenge to us today is to say, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy your life here on earth. It doesn't mean you can't feel the privilege and the honor that it is to be a citizen of a country that you love. It doesn't mean any of those things. Paul appeals to those things in this letter for the Romans in Philippi. But it does mean that as you let yourself be molded by values and ideas that are going to impact who you are and the way you live your life, your citizenship in heaven has to be the priority. This is what he says. Don't let yourself be tugged in other directions, forgetting the citizenship you have in heaven, because that will lead you on a path that doesn't just sort of take you away from the cross. That's not the language he uses. He says, it'll turn you into an enemy of the cross, because when you let other ideas and values and philosophies of how you live your life so shape you, it can lead you to have your back to the cross instead of looking at it. 
This text seems to be challenging us to say, there are things, behaviors that we should avoid as Christians, yes, and we can read a lot about them in, in, in the New Testament. Behaviors that are encouraged in Christian lifestyles, behaviors that are discouraged in Christian lifestyles. And we can, this text also seems to be challenging us that it's important to recognize that not everyone around us has the same ideas as us, that we have to find a way to, to, to come together in our communities of faith and understand what it means to live for Jesus. But it also really should challenge us, not just as something that was written thousands of years ago to say, whoa, are there attitudes and ideas and values that I've picked up from here, there, wherever, that are just so much a part of who I am because this is my time, my circumstance, my place, my experience, that I don't really stop and evaluate them and say, where do they fit in my life as a citizen of heaven? I think that's what Paul is challenging the Philippian believers to do, and I think it's what he's challenging, the word is challenging us to do today as well. You know, my friend Violet understood what it was to be in two places at once. You know, she, she lived here in Canada, and she was so happy to be here and felt so privileged to be able to provide for her children. But there were some ways which she just couldn't really embrace our way of life. She got used to wearing toques and mittens and she could wrap a scarf because she knew she had to keep warm. But when I would talk to her about some things that she did and the way she interacted with her children and how they were very strange for our customs in Canada, uh, she wasn't going to go there. She was a Sri Lankan mom, and that's how things were going to work. And I think of her example of what it means to be someplace as, a, as a someone who comes from somewhere else when I think about this passage. And I think it need, we, if, we're, if we spend, if we haven't had enough time feeling like we're the one that's different we assume that when we're comfortable, then our Christian faith just fits in with that. But it's when we're forced to say, should my Christian faith make me uncomfortable here? Do I, do I need to stop and think about some things I haven't thought about because they've always just come so natural? And ask, where do they stand in front of the cross? I don't have all the answers. These are answers that you need to work out with the Spirit of God in your life as you strive to say, I have dual citizenship. And maybe for some of you, that's the first step is to say, I, I need to work on thinking about that <laughs> every day. I, I'm a citizen of another place as well. Not just I'm hoping to go there someday. That's a different idea than I'm living there now. And maybe that's what we need to work on. As we recognize the sense that Paul had this passion for these believers that he loved so much, to recognize this, to embrace this, and to know that they, their priority as a citizen needed to be in another kingdom, I pray that you can find a way this morning to let the Spirit speak to your heart about what that means in your life.